Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with my friend Andre Perry. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of a book that came out, uh, I think, quite ahead of the curve in May of 2020 called Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And it's put out by the Brookings Press. That's Brookings Institution Press, I believe, more formally. And uh, it, how do I say, it, it just seems like now everybody's immersed in what Andre was illuminating a little over a year ago. And obviously that book came out, so you were thinking about it well before that time. In a, and a lot of people think about problems, but you seem to have a vision of what was causing these problems that now other people are locking onto. So let, let's start with what inspired you to write the book? What, what did you see on the horizon? And, and tell us a little bit about what, develop, what you developed in, in, over the course of writing the book. Well, there's, there's two major reasons why I, I wrote the book. One is I, I would go back home um, to my hometown of Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, and I would visit the, the home where I grew up. And as the story was told to me uh, as a child growing up, uh, um, that my mother at the time of my birth, she was poor. She already had a a um, child when she was 15 had me when she was 17 and the and the story is told that there was a deal made between my maternal grandmother and the woman i call mom her name is elsie boyd um, and elsie boyd was an older matriarch in the neighborhood that took in kids and a deal was made that she would take me in to this home 1320 hill avenue wilkinsburg pennsylvania and um and my brother came, and then as I was grow growing up, she reared or informally adopted a lot of, of children in the hood. She took in between 12 to 15 kids at various, various stages. Some would stay a few weeks, some would stay a few months. I would stay until I graduated from high school. And, and, and that, so that home that we grew up in is worth so much to me personally but when you look at the list price of that home, um, it's really, uh, you could pick it up for, by agreeing to pay taxes on it. Um, and compare, comparably, homes across uh, a nearby neighborhood are worth thousands of dollars more. So I, I wanted just to see the overall conditions um, that led to me growing up in that home and, and its impact today. And when I started doing that, I found that um, my mom lived in areas uh, that were redlined. She lived in areas um, where there was urban renewal, where highway construction, or um, in the case of my mom, it was actually the building of the civic arena um, that forced her to move to Wilkinsburg. Um, and there were a lot of things that happened in the past. And, um, and I forgot to mention one other thing that my father, who was born in Detroit, um, um, eventually uh, became a heroin addict. Um, he was probably abusive. And um, he died in a prison right outside of Detroit, Jackson State Penitentiary, now known as the you know, Michigan State Penitentiary. And so also, when I looked at where he lived, he lived in areas that were redlined, where highway construction forced them to move. They they both, my mom and my father, were surrounded in, um, by racial housing covenants, so they couldn't le leave. And so I just started studying the conditions. And, and what I found after um, comparing home prices in black majority neighborhoods to those in white 
areas. And and what I did, what my team of, of Jonathan Rothwell and David Harshbarger, we controlled for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics, because we wanted to get an apples to apples comparison between homes. And what we found pretty much astounds that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23%, about 48,000 per home. Cumulatively, um, there's a loss of about 156 billion in lost equity. And, and, and you know, Rob, that's, I mean, to put that in perspective, how big a number that is, 156 billion would have financed more than 8 million four-year degrees um, based upon the average cost of a four-year public education. It would have fin- it would have paid for or financed more than 4 million Black-owned businesses based upon the average amount Black people use to start up their firms. It would have replaced the pipes in Flint, Michigan 3,000 times over, covered all of Hurricane Katrina damage, and it's doubled the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. So um, my father, who was a heroin addict, if he lived in areas that the home- housing were was market rate or the white rate, he would have had better infrastructure, better schooling, greater opportunity to go to college or start a business. You know, um, and I say all the time that that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. When things go wrong in black communities, we blame the people and we don't look at the policies that extract wealth on the daily. So for me, what you know, I'm I'm working on, um, and my the meat of my project is to remove the drags of racism that throttle the growth in Black communities, and that should happen. Um, that that if you remove these drags, you'll see people get greater equity, um, have a greater chance to go to um, college, greater chance of starting a business. And so that's the, the meat of the enterprise. And then and there's one thing, and I'll just go this, through this briefly. When I was in education, I did a lot of work in education in New Orleans post-Katrina. And I would hear this same refrain over and over again. They would say, um, if we could only fix the schools, everything would be all right. Not seeing that school, schools are connected to, to housing segregation and, and the way that finance leads to schools with predominantly black people in it getting $23 billion less than their white counterparts. And so when people say, if we can fix the schools and ignore how schools are financed, then they're just burying their head in the sand to the structural inequality that is really the problem. And so for me, you know, it's an exploration of my hometown, how I grew up, my upbringing, but um, it's also just for, uh, my effort to remove these drags of racism in, in markets, not just housing, but um, markets that affect the, the quality of life of black people. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fascinating to me because you're talking about essentially people acting as though these indicators are some kind of scientific objectiveness. And what value is, is subjective and psychological and based on which you might call it many unconscious traditions and fears, as well as the number of acres or the number of stories or the number of bedrooms. And, and that interaction between the value of the house, on the one hand, its ability to create what I'll call collateral, to foster all kinds of things that improve the quality of life, and which you might call the feedback that when those things aren't there, it depresses the, uh, the way in which the house is assessed for that which is around it. Well, when you see this spiral, the only way you, it seems to me, just listening to you, you can break out of it is to get in to that subject's subjective psychology and fear. Now, I remember when you and I have talked in the past, uh, not online, but, but we just in conversation, uh, you've mentioned to me that there have been some examples where white people are essentially put in the living room to sell the house or have the house assessed and just changing the artwork and the books on the shelf changes how people perceive the house. Yeah, you know, um, um, if folks been reading the New York Times or um, 
I mean, many newspapers all across the country, there's been a recurring story in different locations of people who essentially are either trying to refinance a home, sell a home, and they get an appraiser. And whether they're in a black neighborhood or a white neighborhood, um, the original appraiser comes in very low and they, they suspect something's wrong because they can look at how homes are valued right across the street and go, that doesn't line up with what just happened right down the street. And so many um, black homeowners have done their own sort of uh, test case or, or social experiment. They removed the books, the artwork, the and and actually got white stand-ins. Um, in one case, the um, the white stand-in was a husband, so you had an interracial couple. Um, in the first case, the 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 black wife um, was there, was present when the appraiser came. And the second time around, um, it the the white husband stayed, and this is after removing all the artwork and books and um eventually the uh, the, the second appraiser came in um $140,000 higher uh, or, or something around that in in the case in San Francisco it came in $400,000 higher in, a, in another case in um Indianapolis $120,000 higher and so you know it it, it is really the 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 very idea of a white savior uh, that is taking place and 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 when folks when you see a white person it's um and you get a higher value rate evaluation you're really seeing the intrinsic value of whiteness um take hold that um they 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 see whiteness and somehow the property is miraculously hundreds of thousands of dollars more now the, the, it's clear that in my mind, this is almost theft because when you're talking about losing $140,000, you're really talking about uh, uh, throttling a person's ability to, to start a business, to get another home, to, to pass on generational wealth. I mean, it is a, I mean, it's theft. And, but, and it, but the one thing I don't like about the reporting on this is that it's almost focused on individual appraisers and, and it and it says hey this is the problem of individual appraisers no this is also a function of structural racism you know my research looks at the impact of of, of black the black concentration in a neighborhood and how that leads to um wealth extraction um in a systemic way and so um, and as you put it, that these there's these cultural subjective practices um, that are really inhibiting uh, wealth development. And I'll just be very clear about this: the price comparison model that appraisers use when they compare a home um, the, um, within a neighborhood that's been discriminated against over time. You essentially just recycle the discrimination over and over again, and and let's also be clear that that eighty five percent appraisers are white, um seventy five percent are male, and we know that there is a, a connection between representation and outcome and all subjective types of uh, exercises, and so um and and one more thing and let's not forget the history. That appraiser, uh, the 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 price comparison model was also a tool to keep black people out of neighborhoods, and and so we clearly need new practices that are devoid of this this tradition, um, because it's really this limiting um, wealth development, um, and um, sometimes encouraging theft, in my opinion, um, when it comes to the valuing of homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask, uh, I'm thinking of what I might call comparative geography. Are there places where this phenomena is extreme and other places where it's quite diminished, where, and where essentially it's not profound? Uh, can you, uh, I'd be interested where, 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 we should, where we should live if we 
want to overcome racism, we're up for a black person. What, what's a place where you're going to get a fair shake? Lynchburg, Virginia, let me tell you, there's an 85% difference between equivalent homes in black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, meaning if you helicoptered a home from a black neighborhood and put it in a, a white one with similar social circumstances, again, similar educational levels, um, crime levels, it would increase in value by 86%, 85%. I mean, it's insane. And, and, and then on the flip side, you have places like Nashville, believe it or not, where it's a plus 10% value in black neighborhoods. Now, um, that is fraught because um, when we looked at the um, home ownership rates and, 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 and other factors, um, it's a very older homeowner in those neighborhoods. So clearly those places are vulnerable to gentrification. Um, um, and But that's what, what's happening in most cases where you see um, prices, uh, prices of home, list prices of home so low that eventually only people with cash can buy them. I, I mean, your hometown of Detroit, for instance, um, there are thousands of properties priced below a point that a, ba a bank won't back with a mortgage. And so the only way you can acquire a home is through a contract and there's no regulation between those kind of contracts um, between a buyer and seller. So there's a lot of just um, uh, unsavory practices going in in, in those things. So, um, but on the, uh, but again, th there are some places where home values are higher in black communities and it, it tends to be in areas where there's higher black home ownership, um, uh, black instit or, or anchor institutions like HBCUs, uh, Black-owned banks, or or also government um, entities where there's a lot of, uh, where higher rates of employment, because we know a Black people have a, a, better, uh, a better chance of being employed where there's lots of public sector jobs. And so there are some factors that are, are tend to sort of uh, increase value, but Overall, it's much more um, devaluation, as I said, and, and I use the word devaluation to put action on, so to say that, hey, th there's a, a purposeful or uh, disparate impact on the assets in Black neighborhoods. They're, they're being devalued. Um, and, 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 and part of my mission is to calculate that Black tax, if you will, so that we can restore the value uh, that's been extracted by racism. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, how do I say, I think a, tr a tremendously important context that you're exploring. Are there international comparisons? And we know that the, what you might call original sin of America, that racism was very profound. But do you see similar kinds of um, influence in marketplaces outside the United States? Well, you know, I, I'll put it this way, because in, clearly in many different um, contexts, in at least in the industrialized world, that you see a lack of investment in black neighborhoods, in immigrant neighborhoods. And, and there's so many um, sort of these boards that are created to essentially determine value. Um, and, and, and those boards or these um, organizations that set the value of various things from homes to um, bond ratings to a number of issues um, are, are steeped in racism. I mean, and, and so when I look at um, homes and in, in, in communities that are pers persistently undervalued and divest or were not invested in, um, you can also find similar bodies that have essentially deemed these neighborhoods unworthy of investment until until white people move in. And then miraculously, uh, there's a heightened value. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's insane. Um, I, I encourage people to go to 
the my, uh, the Brookings website, the devaluation of assets in black um, neighborhoods. It's a it's a report that um, anchors my my book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Um, but the report can be found on the Brookings website. But you see, as the concentration of blackness increases, the price decrease, and it's very linear. And and the, the but the reverse is true. As the as the population of white uh, people increase or um, increase in a neighborhood, so does the value. And and you know it goes without saying. You're really seeing that intrinsic value of whiteness really appear or come out of the wash in the value of homes. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, last question on this kind of comparative theme. Uh, what happens to Latin communities relative to white communities, and again, relative to the black community? Yeah, we, we're actually uh, starting that research now. Um, I will say this, I, I suspect a similar phenomenon, but not the exact same thing, because remember, it was anti-black policy that really um, shifted um, these systems in housing, um, employment discrimination, and in other areas. It was really anti-black policy, and certainly other people were caught up in that. We still see, for instance, um, home values in formerly redlined areas um, generally lower than others in spite of the population in it. So, um, so that impact of redlining still has a drag on um, the communities, regardless of people who are in it. And, and this is something that we also found, you know, black people are no longer the predominant group in formerly redlined areas. It's Hispanics and whites, then blacks, um, who live in um, those areas. And you see um, um, sort of worse outcomes in those areas regardless. So I, I would venture to say that as brown people move into black neighborhoods, and you're seeing this all over the country, um, their wealth is being robbed by those same anti-black policies overall. So I, 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 I think you'll see a similar um, um, sort of devaluation, but um, I think that you'll see it more pronounced in black neighborhoods because it was anti-black policy that led to um, many of these practices that extracted wealth. So in this, what I'll call spiral or, or interactive amplifying loop, we see that the, the lower valuations diminish what you might call the wealth power collateral upon which a more vigorous system can be built, educational institutions, small businesses, probably things like uh, transportation opportunities for people who could reach out a little further where the, to explore jobs that are more vibrant if getting from here to there was easy to do. There are all kinds of you know, what's the quality of healthcare clinics? All of these things which you've shared with me are, how do I say, intertwined with these valuations. I'm a doctor's son. I think the diagnosis that you have, you know, what you might call excavated from your childhood and made systematic, it sings to me about the stuff I observed in around Detroit and suburban Detroit on the Lower East Side. And, but, I, but I'm a doctor's son, so I, the diagnosis is brilliant. But doctor, what's the remedy? How are we gonna get out of this spiral? Where's, where's, the, where's the leverage point? You know, I, and I, I say uh, broadly, nothing grows without investment. I, I'm, what the Vietnamese philosopher, um, and excuse me for mispronouncing name, Tic Tac Hanh Thang. Yeah, Tic Tac Hanh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, one of my favorite quotes was, if you see a head of lettuce and it's not growing, and I'm paraphrasing, um, you don't blame the lettuce. You look to see if it's getting enough water, if it's getting enough sunlight, if the soil's rich. You never blame the lettuce. But when it comes to um, Black communities and development, we're constantly blaming the lettuce. 
And so we need to make sure the soil is rich, it's getting water. In other words, we, we need to invest in the infrastructure and the other surrounding things that will lead to growth. And so the remedy is around investment. We're not gonna, you know, like what, you know, the, the ultimate bad play on this is um, let's um, arrest people. Um, let's make the community safer by arresting people. And you're literally extracting people from the neighborhood, which makes matters worse. And so the ultimate, I mean, broadly speaking, is to invest in communities, to remove these sort of um, heirlooms of segregation, these, the, the, you know, the these uh, appraisal practices and other real estate practices that were uh, prevalent um, during a time of, of, of segregation. We got to remove these things and replace them with ones that are anti-racist, that encourage inclusion. And, you know, Rob, this is something that um, we've talked about in private. We really have a warped sense of, of, of um, return on investment and risk. You know, what what we what the hor a horrible practice or tradition developed from redlining is that that the the homeowner the federally backed homeowners loan corporation deemed black neighborhoods too risky for investment when in fact it was the segregated communities that imperiled black people um long term but when you look at interest rates when you look at investment it's we're almost rewarding what's actually causing harm. Um, and also we gotta rethink what the return on those investments are. We're constantly investing in things that ultimately, um, and this was exposed by the pandemic, that ultimately leads to, to, to worse death rates, worse economic outcomes, um, worse housing outcomes for people of color. And as, demographic shift um, where we're, we're becoming a, um, a minority white um, um, country, you know, we, we, that, that calculus is just not going to hold up. I mean, it, it, it's, it's putting all of us in peril. And, and, and I say this all the time, if, if we learned anything from this pandemic is that when our neighbors are sick, we are then vulnerable. And that's true economically as well. It's not just a medical phenomenon. So we have got to invest in the people that have not been invested in. I, I mean, I, I generally study underappreciated assets, meaning if you just add water, it will grow. Well, the underinvested assets are in Black communities. They're in the, the Black entrepreneur. They're um, it's in Black housing. And, and it's to ensure that people... Um, have stable housing, could have an opportunity to buy a home, to to start a business. And so when we get there, um, we will enlarge in the proverbial pot. I'll give you one this quick example of that. Black people represent about 14% of the population, but only 2% of the employer firms in the United States. If if the employer firms match the black population, we would have 800,000 more black businesses in the economy, 800,000. Um, um, greater productivity, a greater employment, um, uh, just overall more wealth in the system. And so in, this, in that regard, equity is stimulus. And so if we just invested toward that equity, you would see everyone benefit from that productivity. But, you know, we just don't, we, we just don't see it that way because our warped perspective of risk is so off. We see, we don't see the, the true re return that can come from those investments. Yeah, uh, as a, uh, I'm, I'm gonna speak of, for this audience, a little economist lingo here, but, uh, the notion of investment and incentives and property rights, the centerpiece of your work, is not unlike the analogy to climate change, where what you invest in and your money and your profit and so forth can have very, very severe side effects. 
And so in some ways, and, and I loved when you brought up the prison industrial system. I know uh, a very eminent scholar who I just made a podcast with, Peter Temin from MIT, is writing a book called Never Together about how the white system resisted change or push back. War on poverty becomes war on drugs, kind of. In, they're just different chapters from right after Reconstruction to the present. But where he came to in the modern period was this enormous expense on mass incarceration. No, no expense or no budget really allocated for the education of the people in prison so they don't return. And, and the enormous expense on what I'll call weaponized law enforcement, which is what you might call damaging the communities. And so the notion of investment, I understand, that's how the place is organized in an unmindful way. Part of the mindfulness is seeing the side effects of how these systems work or what kind of almost like mutants, like high, how turbocharged law enforcement is a symptom of dysfunction and doing more of it isn't healing anything. And, uh, and uh, let me just, bring, I just want to bring something up that to accentuate that, accentuate that point. You know, higher education is usually on the discretionary side of, the, of state budgets. And in places where private prisons really took off, it really squeezed, fun. And, and as more money went in towards those investments, you also took away money from higher education. So not only were you not educating the people who, when you, you extracted people from communities, the work for, workforce and, and, and extracted that, you, then you don't educate them while they're in prison, and then you remove resources for the remaining population to get educated. It, I mean, it's just the wrong um, investment strategy that only helps a few. And, um, and, and it, it really is horrible for the community. So it's, it's you know, it, it's this never ending cycle that we have to break. And again, it's rooted in this false sense of, of value. And, and I just want, I'll, I'll say in, in another way, there's another way to interpret my housing data, that when people look at black communities, they see twice as much crime than there actually is. They see worse education than there actually is. And, and they, um, assume that that's a, 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 the cause by the people in it. And it's like, no, there's really structural barriers that, that predict for this kind of outcome. And we need to remove those kind of, that kind of, those policies, um, those systems that just constantly extract wealth and opportunity from, um, from black people. And, and, you know, one of the things we did for our studies is that we show um, using Ross Chetty's data that show um, how devaluation leads to lower economic mobility. And it's not surprising um, where you see high devaluation, you see lower economic mobility. Overall, people just are not advancing um, because of this. And, and so it's just a, a death spiral um that occurs when you don't invest in things that are worthy of investment mm -hmm. i remember um, in 2016 i ran a conference inet ran a conference in De in detroit on race inequality and though she couldn't appear she had a conflict a woman at university of michigan heather ann thompson spent a lot of time with me talking about what was happening based on mass incarceration. And one of the big effects that she found in her work was when they essentially created privatized prisons, <coughs> the pressure to get the beds filled, if you will, led to more arrests, particularly of dads, in Detroit. Second phase is after more dads are arrested, the performance of children in schools goes down. Third phase, is the teachers who do not have complete control of the environment, including things like fathers of the children they educate going to prison, are being evaluated on the children's national test scores 
and the best teachers started leaving because they couldn't escape the environment. They were getting a downgrade over which they had no control. So the whole thing was disintegrating. And then the final piece that she taught me, and, and I can share with you and the audience here some papers that she's written. The final was, at the time of the census, the people who were convicted of felonies cannot vote. But they weren't considered citizens where their family resided. They were considered citizens in the congressional districts where the prisons were located. And so the state legislature got what you might call turbocharged for the accelerating the benefits to the prison and the prison owners and expanding that to the further detriment of the people in the city of Detroit. Yeah, you know, it is such a a death spiral in that regard. I mean, it, it, you know, and, and it really shows how interconnected our policies are. So when people talk about um, white supremacy and systemic racism, that's what they're really uh, addressing, that there's no real silver bullets, no panaceas. You can't say just close uh, private prisons. You know, yet that would be a good thing. But it's also about reforming housing systems. It's also about reforming or um, um, or abolishing um, the way we finance education. All of these things are so interconnected that you really do need to take a systematic approach to removing them. That that not only what must we change the prison industrial complex that um, killed my father essentially. Um, um, we also have to take uh, change the school systems that um, extract wealth. We have to um, change the housing systems that extract wealth. We have to change health policy. And, and, and let's be clear, the health cost of injuries in prison are, is also a drag on, on state budgets. And so when people are injured because of fights and other issues in prison, um, that money is taking. That money is leaving the higher education realm. So th these things have to uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, be taken care of in a systemic way, and and that's what I try to talk about in my book. There's, you know, certainly um, um, we should have uh, people pointed by reforming or abolishing systems in one area, but. We, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can have people work on criminal justice and education and housing and healthcare um, and, and other quality of life. We, we, I, I can't stand when people say, I'm just gonna keep my head down and work on my issue. Um, no, you know, we need leaders who can see the interconnectedness of oppression. And, and, and really untangle all of that. Um, because if you don't, you may miss a, a critical component um, that is really harming the life chances of, of, of people in our communities. Well, once again, uh, what I, you know, my father was a, a downtown physician, uh, had a practice largely of black patients and his father had set up two hospitals on the south side of Chicago. And I can, I can hear echoes of the kind of, what I call pain, of my father's observations. But you're bringing, you're bringing things into greater focus. And my dad, you know, he, he left a very prestigious academic appointment and so forth to focus on that practice. He became a professor of clinical urology rather than a professor you know, publishing scientific research. And his sense was at times despairing about how we could get out of the spiral, which seems, I mean, I'm talking about being a little boy and learning these things from him in the 70s. It seems the spiral has gotten a lot further out of control even since that time particularly in the, on the frontier of law enforcement we talk about. But I, I, I still keep hearing these echoes. That's the diagnosis. Hit the nail on the head. Where are the remedies? Is this something that involves national legislation? Is this something that involves what you might call 
you've unmasked this terrible process. Is it activism that presses things? Where do the activists focus? Is it counties? Is it communities? Is it states? Is it city governments? Is it everywhere? I don't know, but I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out yeah. what you might call a, a remedy strategy, and I and I need your help. Well, I put it this way: I I call it we needed a reparative culture, and it's actually forming. And 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 the talk of reparations has taken hold um, all across the country. You know, um, Sandy Darity's work, um, Kristen Mullen's work. Um, on reparation is really come into focus. And um, and we actually have some disagreements around that because I've always said that the injuries um, caused by racial injustice occurred at the federal, state, and local level. And there's a battle going on somewhat, a, a debate of sort that says, you know, we have to be focused enough to focus, uh, to, to really drive for federal, a federal reparations package. Um, for particularly for slavery and to cut checks. However, I differ a little bit and say, hey, reparations is not going to come from Washington. It's going to go to Washington. That that it'll come from local reparations efforts. Um, and we're seeing this all over the country in Asheville, North uh, Carolina, in Evanston, um, in um, uh, states. California are considering reparations bill. Uh, Maryland, Virginia. Uh, and in different areas, education, housing. And so I think um, these tests of reparations at the local level will really inform reparations at a, a federal response. And, and ultimately, I think that is what we need, a, a, a culture, a, a reparative culture, where instead of building off of exclusivity, we build off of repairing. And, 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 I, and I see that change, you know, it's going to take a while, but that type of culture is already shifting. It's, it's painful because it is it, um, it's going directly against um, this revival of white supremacy um, spurred by the Trump administration. But, but th there is a culture, a reparative culture um, um, afoot. And let's be clear that if we were honest, we believe in reparations. We just don't believe in, uh, I mean, American and, and broadly speaking. But when it comes to reparations for black people, then it becomes somewhat controversial. Remember, right after a few weeks of being socially distanced, the business community said, federal government, make us whole. You forced us uh, uh, to, to shut our doors. You, you, you forced us to shutter. Uh, the federal government has to respond. Well, what does it look like um, when a social, when a, a, a generation of people or, or people have been socially distanced for generations? What kind of stimulus package does that look like? And so um, we believe in reparations, but when it comes to black people, there's some problem with it. Um, and so we just need to invest in um, people who've been injured, and that will actually spur growth in so many other areas. So um, we should not be afraid of the word or the act of reparations. But um, again, I, I see it a reparative culture that's emerging all across this, of, of the country that will lead to the kinds of investments in Black America that will get us out of this mess. Yeah, I tend to see in, in my own imagination or, or inference from things I see and read, a comp a, a bit of a uh, struggle between the two cultures. One is the reparative culture. Something like Pope Francis last year put out his encyclical, and it was called, uh, I think it was, Frat uh, how do I say, uh, Fratelli Tutti, on the fraternity and social friendship. And it's about mm. the caring for others as being the yeah. essence of That's right. our mission. It's, it's not a me, it's a we. As right. Muhammad Ali used to say in his two-word poem, but the uh, but the facts are that there are people in this time after the pandemic, with disorientation related to change in the mode of production, technology, automation, what have you, who can miss the point and say, yeah. "Why is the money going to them?" 
And that culture, the us and them, the otherness culture, the polarized culture is resistant to the reparative culture, which has a much more what you might call win-win vision. That's right. And I think, you know, this, this reminds me, I used to teach at Union Theological Seminary, and this was at the time uh, where many of the students were involved with Occupy Wall Street. And uh, my kind of mentor in going there were uh, James Cohn, uh, uh, how would I say, uh, Cornel West inspired, and I consulted him a lot. And the, the, the situation that they kept emphasizing was how things would become so despairing that people would say, I'm not going to, which you might call, be like an economist and optimize. I got to go for it because I can't yeah. live like this in a society. And the bellwether, which I believe James turned me on to, was Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph's A Freedom Budget for All Americans. So mm -hmm. when I'm thinking about your remedies, Dr. King was very careful to say, don't go get a supplementary budget for the black people. Structure the budget. Right. He thought there was obviously too much military spending and other things. Structure the budget for all people. And what I'm struggling with, I'm asking you, is how do we overcome that frightened culture yeah. and get to the kind of culture that Pope Francis is pointing to, the reparative culture that is a win-win. I'm glad you brought up um, Pope Francis and LK and really other um, spiritual leader. Reverend Barber is a, a, yeah. a name that should come up. Yeah, yeah. Because um, unfortunately, we've seen a moral force that leaned on the fears and anxieties around exclusivity of, of this false notion of scarcity. And, and um, politicians, and we've seen certainly that in Trump, um, lean on that, those fears and that, that immoral force that, um, as you will, around it. We, we do need a moral force to counter that. You know, we do need sort of a prophetic <laughs> um, voice around um, why businesses are, uh, why we create businesses, in fact, to make, uh, to support communities. Why um, should we help each other? Why we should repair? And, um, and, and I do believe that one of the, I mean, we forget Adam Smith was a philosopher, of, of, you know, that in, in, in this sort of, we remove sort of the moral um, um, obligation of our policies um, um, from the dis discourse. And so when you're talking about growth um, economically, you have to talk about it um, morally, socially. I I'll give you an example. Um, one of the, when I used to work in education, one of the things I, uh, qu uh, questions I used to get all the time was, what's the fastest way to close the the black white achievement gap. And I used to hate that because I used to say, well, the fastest way to close the black white achievement gap is to stop educating white people. Um, <laughs> that would be the fastest way, oh, but yeah. it, would be the, it would be the immoral way. And, but, but the reality is we've done lots of immoral things, to the, similar things to close the proverbial uh, black white achievement gap. We fired teachers in mass, we suspended kids, We've, so the issue of can you or how do you um, close achievement gap, that's not really a, a real question. You can um, um, because all kids can learn. But there's a moral component to this that, that we, we, how do you do it is the real question. Are you going to um, uh, improve um, educational outcomes by hiring more te black teachers, by providing more support? And so this moral obligation to our questions um, must be present or you'll constantly do immoral things to quote unquote solve problems. 
and, and so for me, I'm glad you brought up um, uh, Pope Francis, MLK, we talk about Reverend Barber, because we don't have enough moral language in our um, prescriptions. There's just not enough um, to, because we're here, because we're community. And if we're not really trying to improve community, and what I mean, what are we doing? Because I, I can't stand the term data-driven. No, we should be community-driven, use data to help improve it, but we're missing the community in our analyses and in our solutions. So, um, but we need that moral force. And I, and this is where I'm a big fan of Reverend Barber, and I don't think he gets enough attention because, um, as you mentioned, MLK, his, I mean, his moral authority is what helped elevate um, our economic opportunities. It was his moral presence um, that um, in, that really informed his economic analysis. Um, and, and so we just need more of that work. Uh, um, and so I welcome it. I welcome it. Yeah. I'm glad you cite Reverend Barber. He was also visiting uh, at the Union Theological Seminary when I was an adjunct teaching there. And I interacted with him quite a lot. And I mentioned our conference in 2016 at INET. It was three days after the presidential election. Obviously, he'd been very involved in that. He was exhausted. He came in in front of 250 uh, economists, PhDs, or aspiring economists. He spoke for an hour and 26 minutes, and when he finished, there was a Nobel laureate who will remain anonymous sitting next to me, and he said, I wouldn't change one comma in that hour and a half speech. That was beautiful. Yeah. And Reverend Barber shared with me that he had done some graduate work in economics, but not in that kind of, which you might call segmented for moral way, but as a right. interactive uh, fusion of the two notions. And his writings were beautiful. I recently had the good fortune, again, via union to take a remote class with Aubrey Hendricks called The Kingdom of God and Political Economy. Yeah. And by the way, he asked me to go back and say, who was the real Adam Smith? As I was the only economist in the group. So I had to bring Smith, and if you study Smith in terms of like intellectual history, everybody thinks his greatest work was the theory of moral sentiments. That's right, that's right. And, and that uh, he had beautiful observations about the developing marketing and manufacturing process, but it was in the context of the vision of the theory of moral sentiments. And there are so many things that are said. I should just create a list to uh, put on the website of him quoting things that contradict what you might call the obsessive free market fundamentalism that avoids exactly. these crossovers, these side effects, the possibility for win-win uh, shifts but, in policy. But I say that that it's the lack of that moral reasoning, that lack of moral reasoning included in all of our analysis, that's part of systemic racism. That we, you know, it, it's that that lack of rigor in that regard that leads to a lack of rigor in all of our analyses. And, um, and for me, you can't, you cannot compartmentalize the hows and the whys from sort of robotic sort of uh, uh, analysis on, on how to improve something. And so, uh, you know, for me, it, it's central. It's, it's more important than, you know, getting your regression right and, and all these other things. How are you valuing people um, is a question that, that, that should be um, central in everything we do. Yes. yes. But I remember, um, again, I refer to Peter Temin. He wrote a book called The Vanishing Middle Class that INET sponsored. Yeah. In the, the, what I'll call the meta punchline there, it, it resonates with what you might call the music that you're playing for us today. He was convinced 
that wherever there were what you might call ups and downs in the economy and economic despair was heightened. It triggered racial animosity and otherness being heightened. It just went up and down in lockstep, meaning across sections, across regions, the places that were in the deeper slumps were seeing an acceleration in racial animosity. But what he really came back to was this substituting otherness for togetherness was yeah. destroying the rungs and the ladder of, of potential for the future. As we were moving to a knowledge-intensive economy uh, based on high-margin services at the top end and low-margin services at the bottom end, education was the pathway. Just like in an earlier time, the migration from the farm to the factory raised social prosperity and productivity, albeit painfully. But he was saying, what's happening now is, like you said, roughly 14% of the population is black, but 70% of the population will be in the low margin services. Yep. And all kinds of people are voting to shoot themselves in the foot and destroy the education that should system that should be for all of us. And by the way, those high margin services would experience a little more competition yeah. and maybe those wages wouldn't be so extremely high, exacerbating right. inequality. But but I just thought it was a brilliant analysis and it feeds right back into all the things you're talking about. I'll add this to the table. Technology should not be a master. It should be a means to achieve oh, a social no. vision. And when you unleash it like it's a god, like it's going to take you there, I understand that there are people who even fight good technology because it protects their intellectual property rights or whatever. We see a lot of that in fighting. But, but unbridled tolerance of innovation and social adaptation, no matter what, can be very dangerous coming from that place, that wrong place of vision. You know, um, I'm, there's a couple of things you said I don't, uh, I, I'm hoping I don't forget. There is an um, an importance to education in schools, not just formal education, but but certainly the, it, it involves it, that um, we've lost sight of one of the goals of public education, and it's to learn how to work, play, and and, and grow together. And um, we, we just are missing that from our curricula. I mean, even when you're talking about civic education, it's very sterile in a sense of it's about uh, the three branches of government and, 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 and not really about how we can work and live together civically um, um, so that we can create a better society. Um, in addition, and there's one other thing in, that, in your last comment that um, spurred uh, a thought. Um, Derek Hamilton, economist Derek Hamilton at the New School and I were working on a project where we're trying to score or do equity scoring, meaning that the same way we score um, legislation's uh, potential impacts on the budget, we should be looking at the potential impacts on people of color. It, will it have disparate impact? And so, because um, part of what how I digested what you said is that we must build in structures um, that encourages in inclusivity. But right now, so many of our structures are built to create exclusive environments that cause harm. And so um, we've got to um, shift in, in so many ways and we can. And, and again, I think we're, we're moving towards that direction, but the next five years, let's be clear, it's gonna be painful towards that reparative culture that we've described. Yeah. Well, I think we're getting close to the, uh, how do I say, close to the end of the day here, or the, the episode. I, I want to thank you very much for, how would I, just the way in which you illuminate things through the place that's the greatest pain you've felt has enormous ramifications for the black community. But it's a, it's a wake-up call across many, many regions as to where which you might call social theory has to go beyond 
what I'll call the secular religion called economics. And uh, I wanted to, I often use some kind of artistic thing to close, and I wanted to share a story with you. My mother was kind of Scottish, and I guess that's why I learned about a band called the Talking Heads. And uh, when I was when I was younger, uh, but David Byrne of the Talking Heads created a satirical Broadway play called "Everybody's Coming to My House." Or, no, it's called "American Utopia." His Broadway play is called "American Utopia," but towards the end, he has a song called "Everybody's Coming to My House." And he told a story the night that I was there about how he wrote that song cynically, that, that he was kind of mocking America and the, which I call fantasies about house where community was deteriorating, which reminded me of your work. But he said, I was cynical until I performed in Detroit and there was a lady they called Miss V brought a bunch of children together and they learned this song and they sang it. And then they called me and asked me to hear them. And they changed my song so that I do believe in it. So I would, I would find for this uh, broadcast and for you on YouTube, the exploration and it's just a few minutes, six, seven minutes, highlighting Mrs. V and the song that, uh, how would I say, the cynic was transformed mm. into a warm optimist. That's what you're doing. And thank you very much. And thanks for having me, Rob. We'll have to, uh, how do you say, stay closely attentive to your work, Derek's work, everybody else's work that you turn us on to. And I hope in a few months I can bring you back and uh, we'll take it. Let's get it. Good. I'm looking forward to it. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking but I'll know my song well before I start singing.